I grew up in a, a large family. I was number four of eight, which had its, its uh, struggles and its joys. We were a, a, a lower middle class family. We didn't have a lot of worldly possessions that all our neighbors had. They had swimming pools, snowmobiles. I was raised in Michigan, so we had a lot of snow. And they had the snowmobiles. They had all the trinkets and toys that, that I wish I had. And I realized early in my life that I would probably, probably never have those things. I, we were just, that was just the way it was. But the nice thing was that I was uh, friends with all these neighbors that had the pools and the snowmobiles and all the toys, and, and I got to go in their pools, drive their snowmobiles, and play on their pool tables and, and all the things they had, like they were mine. It wasn't a bad setup at all. But throughout that time, as I'm, I'm thinking back and, and, and just thinking about my childhood, I always felt second class. Because there, there was always somebody that had more than me. There was always somebody who was a better athlete than me. There was always somebody who was, had all the girlfriends, and I didn't. And I kind of felt like, man, what's going on in life? There was always somebody better. But the thing is, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. That's the furthest thing from my mind because of what God has done in and through my life. The things that I've been able to experience, the privilege that I've been able to accomplish in my lifetime is a sign of God's grace. The power and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through my life is just, it's, it was amazing. Realizing that, that I am who he wanted me to be, not who I thought I should be, Okay. Helen and I both came from very dysfunctional families growing up. My mom and dad divorced when I was um, seventh grade. Her mom and dad were mentally divorced but lived in the same house. And it was just, it's truly a miracle that we are where we are today. And I don't take this for granted. When I see all the things that God has done for his glory and for his sake in our lives. So don't feel sorry for me that I was always chosen second. It, does, it doesn't matter. This is our final week of, of our missionary month. We do this every August. And, and I'd like to spend our time tonight looking at two different Bible characters who were flawed or they felt that they were inadequate to do God's work, the job that he had for them. They, these two people, would never have thought that they could be used by God to accomplish anything that would be worthy to be put in the Bible. This month we, we heard from Bob Briggs the first week and he was talking about all that was going on in RHM and, and the role of the church, that we, the church, or the body of Christ, are at the center of God's unfolding mystery. He shared that with us. David Springer shared the next week of, and challenged each of us to take God's work seriously and share our faith with somebody each week. If we all did that, a church of 600 people would share the gospel with one person each week, then the whole Lehigh Valley would be reached in nine months if we did it. Last week, Bob and Emily shared with us, showed us Christ through the festivals, through the booth, 
festival of booths and that, and how that, that all these things pointed to Christ and the role and responsibility that we have as believers. So today, I'd like to bring all that together and, and, and show you from the Bible how God has a plan and a purpose for each of us. It's, it's what he does. That's what he does best. That we can have not a small impact or make a difference in somebody's life, a small one, but to, that we could have a profound impact in our community as individuals and as a church. If I were to take a survey right now and ask you to raise your hand, I'm sure that, that a lot of you would raise your hand and say, I do not feel adequate to do what God wants me to do. I don't know enough about the Bible, I'm, I'm not gifted that way, or I'm too young in the Lord. Um, I've never even considered God using me in, in, in that way. Or I'm too young, I'm too shy, I'm too old to start doing that kind of stuff. Now, there's tons of things that we could think of why we're not doing what God wants us to do. So before we dive into this, I want to have a word of prayer and uh, commit this time to God and, and then look at, look at these Bible characters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight, this, this beautiful day you gave us, that we have the honor and privilege of, of sitting in church with the freedom that we have. And Lord, there's, there's times in our lives that we feel inadequate. We don't feel that, that you are uh, capable of using our, our frailties and our weaknesses. But Lord, you are. You are more than capable, more than able to make all grace abound to us. So we want to thank you and worship you and commit this this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a list in the Bible of, of people who felt or they were flawed or inadequate to do what God. I'm going to run through a little list here. Abraham. How old was he when he when God called him? He was 75 years old. He didn't have his first child till he was a hundred years old, his promised child. Joseph, he was abused as a child. Sold as a slave, sent down to Egypt. Moses was stutterer. He was afraid. He said, God, send somebody else. I don't want to do that. Rahab, used of God mightily, was, was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were both too young. They said that, God, I'm, I'm too young. I can't do that kind of stuff. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Job. He went bankrupt, lost everything, including all his children. Had boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. How could God use somebody like that? Peter, he denied Christ. Should have thrown him out, right? He's, he's worthless. He can't serve God. Martha, she worried about everything. And Timothy, also, he had an ulcer. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. And Mary, she was a teenage peasant girl. Peter. Peter was an impetuous, uneducated fisherman. God used him so mightily. And Matthew, he was a hated tax collector. This list could go on and on of people in the Bible that felt inadequate or just flawed in some way. So I'd like to narrow that list down and talk about two of them tonight. 
Our first person, we would look at him and for all appearances would, would look scared and weak. He was hiding in a, in a wine press in order to winnow his wheat because he was afraid of the enemy nations would come and steal it. The Israelites did evil before the Lord and the Lord handed them over to the Midianites. We're going to look in Judges chapter 6 to start with. And I don't have the words on the screen so that we're going to do it old-fashioned way. Grab your Bibles and open to Judges chapter 6 and follow along with me in, in here as we, as we look at these. In Judges chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 we see right here in Scripture that says that the Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years and they opposed Israel. As we look at these, so this is what was happening. The Israelites turned their back on the Lord and so that God allowed the Midianites to come in and raise havoc in their nation for seven years. I want to read this story starting in verse 11. Tonight I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation for the sake of the flow. When we're done reading, then we're going to switch back to the ESV. And um, so we're going to start in verse 11. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue, the Israel, rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. This is a sob story. You want your violin here? The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Amazing. Here's a guy weak. The Israelites... Like I read, they had turned their backs and were doing evil. They started worshiping idols. They were living ungodly lives, and they turned from the one true God. And so the Lord allowed the Midianites and the Amalekites to come in and overrun the nation and cause havoc for seven years. When they planted crops, they would go to harvest them, but these marauders would come in, and they would take what they wanted and then burn the rest. So in order to keep some harvest for themselves, Gideon was hiding in a wine press and threshing his wheat. In verses 7 to 10, if you just look, glance at those, you'll see that the Lord had sent a prophet to them and was chiding them for them turning away from the Lord. Well, then next, in verse uh, 11, God sends an angel to Gideon while he is in the wine press. I love, I love this interchange between the angel and Gideon. 
in verses 12 and 13, the angel says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's response is classic. In, verse, in the ESV, it says, please, sir. Or in our modern language, yeah, right. Can you just imagine? Yeah, right. Yeah, please. If God was here, why are we in this, this predicament right now? If, why, are, why are our enemies taking over? I have all these troubles. Have you ever heard those statements? I've heard them. People say the same thing today, what Gideon was saying way back then. If, if God loves me so much, why am I struggling? Well, what Gideon saw all these problems that they were experiencing and the fact that they were close to starvation. And he wasn't seeing too clearly, though. Whose fault was it that they were in this condition anyways? It was their own. They're the ones. It says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They turned their backs on the Lord. It wasn't God that left them. They left God. So these problems came on to them because of their own fault. They were the ones sinning and turning their backs on the Lord and worshiping false gods and idols that they found themselves in this predicament. Gideon, as the Lord was talking to him, he said Gideon considered himself as a nobody. He was nobody. How many of us feel that way? Now, why would the angel call him mighty man, mighty hero, mighty warrior when, when he was scared? Because God did not see Gideon's fears and weaknesses that he was displaying. He saw the potential that because, you, because I love you and because I am going to be with you, you are going to be able to accomplish these great things in my name. That's what he saw, what God saw. And it was because of the spirit strength in him. One thing I want us to remember tonight, write these down, that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You've probably heard that before, that God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. We need to remember that at those times when we're, we're feeling that God can't use me. But as we step out by faith, it's he the one who equips us. The other thing I want you to remember that it's not about your ability, but it's, about, it's all about your availability. God, I'm yours. Use me however you want. So Gideon, as, we, as you read through this, he still had doubts and fears, and he asked God to prove himself. So God did, if you read through those, chap those verses later. Gideon proved, God proved himself to Gideon, and that night... He did something that the world would look at and say, that's crazy. Why are you doing something like that? But yet he did it with a lot of fear. Let's look and see what he says. In verse 25, it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Ashereth that is beside it and built an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Ashereth that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it 
by night. So right after God said, you know, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do this. You've got to have confidence in me. Still, there was fear. Little by little, Gideon's became confident in the Lord and what God wanted him to do. He, like us, put yourself right in that same boat. At the beginning, it's it, it a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. Is it, God, is this going to work? Can you imagine when, they, when, when uh, Elijah dumped all that water on, on that, that sacrifice up on Mount Carmel and the Lord rained down fire? You think there was a bit of doubt in his mind that God could accomplish that? What if God doesn't send that fire down? There's fear. When we step out by faith, there's fear. But as he or as we walk daily by faith and, and place our confidence and hope in God, in our great God, we will be able to accomplish all that the Lord has for us. Amen? So stop doubting and start trusting and, and seeking his will for your life. You know, I've said this before, and I'll never stop saying it until we get it in our heads. I got to remember it myself. Is that if I'm able to accomplish the task before me in my own strength, I'm not trusting God. I'm not walking by faith. I'm walking in my own strength. So what is it that, that God is, is asking you to step out of your comfort zone, to step out of your own abilities and strength to be able to trust him? Something over and above your own natural abilities in that. Gideon, he followed the Lord, obeying all that God asked him to do. And what were the results? They had 40 years of peace while he lived. 40 years he reigned as a judge. Well, let's move to our second person who was very unlikely candidate to be used by God but made a huge difference. Open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background about the Samaritans. After King David and Solomon died, the the Jewish nation divided into two nations, the northern one, which was Israel, the southern one, which was Judah. In 1722 B.C., that's before Christ, Assyria conquered Israel and took most of its people into captivity. Then the invaders then brought Gentiles and people from all other nations and put them in to live among the Jewish nation that was still remaining there. So there was a lot of intermarriage going on, and they began to not be Jewish, full-blooded Jewish. They were they called them half-breeds and, and things like that because they were no longer full-blooded Jews. Well, 122 years later, at 600 B.C., Judah, the southern kingdom, fell to Babylon and was taken away into captivity for 70 years. After that time, they were allowed, permitted and to come home, return to their homeland, and they started to rebuild Jerusalem. They built the wall and they built the temple. But the Samaritans from the north tried vigorously to stop them from rebuilding that. We studied that in Nehemiah with Sanballat and all those other guys that came down from the north and were trying to get them to stop building that wall, stop building the temple. Now, they did build the wall, right? They did rebuild the temple, but there was a bigger wall of division between the Samaritans 
and the Jews. That hatred was building. In fact, in, in John 8, 48, it says that the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is how they felt about them. They hated them. With that hatred in mind, we pick up the story when Jesus was leaving the northern part of Galilee and, and coming down. He passed through Samaria uh, one day and he sat down by a well while his disciples went into town to get some food. Starting in verse 7, let's read there. A woman from Samaria came up to draw water. One thing I want to mention, somebody mentioned to me the other day that this woman was very, very, very heavy because she was a woman of some area. Okay, I laughed when he told me that joke, but... All right, scratch that from the record, everybody. I was never able to tell jokes. Nobody ever laughs at my jokes. All right. So let's start over. This woman of Samaria came to draw, draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in, into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and, and, and drank from it himself as did his sons and, and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty. I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, ha I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, are, you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jump down to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and, and were coming to him. Jump down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He, he told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then said to, they, they said to the woman, it is no longer 
because of you that we have believed. For we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. Here we have a hated Samaritan woman coming to draw water and Jesus began to talk to her. This is, this is very uncommon for this to happen. The racial prejudice, we think racism is bad today. No, it was bad. They looked down on her for who she was and they would never talk to him, never make eye contact, and let alone ask for anything. It would have nothing to do with them. To help illustrate that, my, when my daughter Tracy was born in Mehongsong, Thailand, Helen had to have a cesarean. And because of this surgery, she couldn't walk up the stairs to a, a private room. So they put her in this main, this big room that had like 20 beds in it. And in that room were all kinds of tribal people and others who were there for other sicknesses and, and things. As Helen lay there, she could see the disrespect that the Thai nurses and doctors had for the tribal people because they couldn't speak the Thai language. They thought that if they raised their voices, that they would understand. So they would scream at them, and they still wouldn't understand. You could see the animosity in their face, the disgust that they had for these people, because a lot of them aren't well-dressed like the Thai people are, or they come in with their tribal clothes on, and they're sometimes, a lot of times, dirty when they're sick. As Helen was laying there listening to these ladies talk, um, she realized that some of them were Red Karin, the language that we spoke. So as the nurses came in one time and were trying to ask a simple question, they were raising their voice. Have you had a bowel movement today? They'd ask a simple question like that. They would raise their voices and shouting at these ladies who had no clue what they were saying. Helen spoke up and in their language asked, She asked them, have you had a bowel movement today? And their face lit up and, and the nurses looked over at Helen and, and the, the attitude and the action, the the atmosphere changed immediately that day in that hospital bed because there was somebody there that would speak for them, somebody there that would represent them and, and be a, a witness of what the nurses and doctors wanted because one person stepped up, the culture changed. So some, something had to be done here to help the Samaritans understand and see the gospel. And Jesus saw the potential in this woman. He knew all about her. He brought her the truth, and she immediately believed and wanted to go and tell the whole town. This woman, who had been married five times and is now living with a guy out of wedlock, God wanted to use her. What was wrong with this woman? That she couldn't stay married for any length of time? She was searching for something. She was searching, and she found it in Christ. She found what she was after. That love, that acceptance, that perfect peace that she's always wanted to have. And she's been looking for it in the wrong places. She found it in Christ and she wanted to tell everybody about it. God used this very unlikely woman to change a whole community. So what, 
what is it about these two people that, uh, that, that we need to learn? Simply this, that God takes the foolish and flawed people of this world to fulfill his plans, his purposes, to complete his mission here on earth. It's as simple as that. I put myself in that camp. When we begin to think that we are something, that I've got something to offer God, he says, no thanks. It's when we come to him humbly saying, God, I have, do not have the strength. I do not have the wisdom. I do not have what it takes to do what you want me to do. That's when he says, come on, brother. Come on, sister. I'm going to use you in a mighty way because you're faithful. Your, your faith is in me. And allow me to do that. It's a place where we go and we get that supernatural strength. So the next time you're feeling inadequate, that's an awful pl awesome place to be. It's awesome. It's where God wants us. So remember, you're going to be in good company. Is this video starting? Is there a video? In 1982, there was a young couple, ages 25 and 26, who embarked on a mission with two and a half kids. She was pregnant for number three. They headed to Thailand, scared, nervous, and with no idea what was in store for them. They dove into language study with both feet, and after studying the Thai language for a year, they moved up to a little town in Mahongsan with their co-workers, John and Kathy, to work among the Red Karin group, an unreached people group in the northwest part of Thailand near Burma, near Myanmar. Little did they know at that time the influence that they would have on that part of the world. That was 35 years ago. John and Kathy, Helen and I began teaching some Red Karin people and a little church was established. A little church was born in the village of Topsok. There were others who were a part of this work that made all of this a reality. This video represents the work that is going on now in that area. We could never, or would we ever, try to take credit for the results that the Word of God had in these people's lives. John was a farmer from Oregon. Kathy was a dental hygienist from Amarillo, Texas. Helen was fresh out of high school, and I was a machinist by trade. But we went out with willing hearts in the blessing of our home churches, desiring to have an impact somewhere in this world. Tom and Alicia worked alongside us for a few years. John and Brooke served with Wycliffe Bible translators. They translated a Bible in another dialect of Red Corin. Peter and his wife Ochi began teaching the believers after we left back for the States. We had no idea the impact that our lives would have. Us frail, scared young couples that went out there, what God could do. What about you? Could you ever see yourself doing something like this? Probably not. We never did. That was, we never thought anything like this would ever happen. 
Never in a million years would we ever expect to see these results. But because of what I said earlier, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Helen shared with me something yesterday that, that it's, not, it's not our adequacy. It's, it's trusting in a God who is adequate to take us where he wants us. What is it that God's calling you to do today? Could it be to talk to your neighbors, co-worker, fellow student, or roommate, or, or to pull up stakes and move to another part of his creation to allow him to use you to change the world? Point number three on, on your outline is a blank line. And on that line, I want you to take a minute and think and write down what you would think God would want you to, uh, to do with his strength. Something that you can't do in your own strength. What would that look like? And today, after you leave, I want you to go home, talk to your family, talk to a neighbor, talk to a friend, share with them what, what you dreamed of on that line. Amen? Before I pray, I want to give you a minute to think and write, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pray in just a minute.